Welcome to the Coronation Merchant Bank podcast series, where we discuss economic, market, growth, and development trends, as well as relevant topical themes. My name is Chinwe Egwim, Chief Economist of Coronation Merchant Bank, and I will stir these conversations. Each episode promises to be interesting, and I am confident you will receive insightful nuggets from our discussions. Now let's get started. The topic for this episode is bridging the infrastructure gap. Now, infrastructure is broad and constitutes of road, rail, water, and power, among others. Infrastructure is crucially important to foster economic development and prosperity. Investments in infrastructure contribute to higher productivity and growth, facilitates trade and connectivity, and also promotes economic inclusion. It is also worth highlighting that connectivity among regions and rural communities is important to boost economic growth, and as such, the development of railways, roads, and highways is very important. Now, infrastructure projects should create business opportunities, which should include improving agriculture and farming activities. Given that agriculture accounts for over 20% of total national output in Nigeria, and is capable of becoming the country's economic backbone, ensuring that farmers are able to transport their harvests conveniently and access markets outside their regions easily due to improved infrastructure will be a major positive. Indeed, market accessibility and trade networks can be significantly expanded if quality infrastructure thrives. Now, one way to drive sustainable infrastructure development is through public-private partnerships. Depending on how the public-private partnership is structured, the private party could cover most of the costs of the project, and then government can take ownership of the project assets after a concession period. In this way, governments and private parties across Nigeria, and even Africa as a whole, can work together to provide the much-needed infrastructure to communities that require it. To a large extent, infrastructure plays a structural role in price stability. Well-planned infrastructure can ease price pressures as it improves productivity. For instance, in the past, infrastructure development in China has played an important role in limiting rising inflation. Despite periods of very strong growth in demand and, um, of course, economic activity. On another note, infrastructure can offer some form of inflation protection to investors, with the degree of protection varying by assets, of course. Most infrastructure assets have an explicit link to inflation through regulation, concession agreements, or contracts. Now, turning to national output, when we look at the national accounts for Nigeria, Growth levels in the real estate and construction sectors can serve as a barometer for a segment of infrastructure development. Now, both sectors, that is real estate and construction, registered less than 5% year-on-year growth in the first quarter of 2022. It is clear that there is still vast room for improvement when it comes to infrastructure in Nigeria. Let us take a deeper dive into this front-burner topic. So my guest today is Rolake Akinkube Filani. She is a reputable infrastructure, energy, and investment executive 
with over 15 years working experience. Roleka is the chief commercial officer of leading infrastructure developer, Mixta Africa, where she drives growth and market penetration across the group's subsidiaries in Nigeria, Senegal, Morocco, Tunisia, and Cote d'Ivoire. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rolake. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you, Chinwe. Okay. So, you know, since the national accounts for the second quarter of this year was just released, let us start by getting your thoughts around the growth trend of sectors such as construction and real estate, which feed into today's infrastructure story. We have seen construction and real estate sectors post growth of below 5% within Nigeria's national accounts in the past few quarters. In your view, what can be done to ensure that these sector or these sectors attain double digit growth? Okay, thanks, Joy. I think, you know, I've always felt that construction and real estate are key drivers of economic activity and growth. And unfortunately, since the height of the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdown, which has been about two years now, we saw a real slump in economic activity, particularly construction activity. And we felt the trickle down effect along different parts of the construction value chain. Um, so even the recovery we've seen in the past year was because coming out of the pandemic, we were coming from a low base. Uh, but I think a key driver really is around general economic and consumer sentiment. And why do I say that? It's really about domestic consumption and how we create value within our economy that drives demand. Um, so seeing a slump in demand, obviously there was a natural slump in demand for services, uh, demand for housing, a bit about the difference between effective demand and actual demand for housing, uh, particularly insofar as infrastructure delivery is concerned. So I think a key driver is just general consumer sentiment, and we need to find ways to boost that. And of course, we need to look at some of the things that drive that, such as interest rate. Uh, availability of consumer credit as well on the demand side. Now, if we look at the supply side as a developer or as a construction company, I think a, a key driver is access to raw materials um, as well as uh, metrics such as the FX rate, the exchange rate, uh, inflation, and the general prices of goods and services. Overall, what we're saying, we need conducive business environments for a sector such as construction and real estate to thrive because they are really a key part of the job creation dynamic for the economy. Um, and so I think perspective, the numbers are not so great. I think these sectors should be contributing significantly more to economic activity. And I hope that we will see some policy and regulatory triggers that will help drive the growth that we desire to see in those sectors. Thank you so much for that. Um, I like what you said about availability of um, consumer credit as one element that could drive growth for these sectors. But what are your thoughts around um, mass housing schemes with regards to boosting socioeconomic development? Okay, maybe before I go directly to answer that question, I, I want to sort of set the context so you understand how the dots are joined. So when we look at infrastructure development at scale in any of the key infrastructure subsectors, whether it's housing, rail, transportation, energy, water, sanitation, even healthcare infrastructure, we always have to remember that infrastructure development is like a virtuous cycle. 
the more the availability of it there is, the more revenue can be generated directly from it and ancillary services that support it. And the more money can then be invested back into the economy and infrastructure development. So the key question with any mass type of or large-scale infrastructure development is what is the multiplier effect? So if we now bring it down to mass housing, what is the role of housing and real estate in sustainable infrastructure development in urban development and economic development? It is really a driver of investment activity, number one. And we can't really speak of housing without talking about utilities, power, water, roads, sanitation, because infrastructure is interconnected. So if someone tells me there is a mass housing project, I will ask the question of how connected or integrated is it with the rest of the infrastructure network in that particular city or economy? So mass housing is fantastic. And then I will ask questions around the quality of the mass housing and where in the economic value chain are we targeting? Is this bottom of pyramid housing? Are you social housing? Is it more affordable housing for lower middle income? Or is it really middle income housing? Or is it luxury housing? We can e immediately discount the luxury housing. Now, if we're talking about any of the three other market segments, then two key questions one is, how is a developer, whether that's public or private sector, going to rapidly scale and deliver in the current economic climate? And number two, how is the demand side going to be able to afford or get on that housing ladder? And who will be responsible for providing the land and the infrastructure? So in principle, mass housing is a great thing because we have a need, but the quality of the mass housing and the route to market for those who will be users of that mass housing are extremely important. Thank you so much for that response. Okay, so now the World Bank estimates that Nigeria needs to spend at least 10 billion US dollars annually for the next uh, 30 years to bridge the infrastructure deficit. Outside the mobilization of domestic funds, what role can the finance sector or investors play in the development of infrastructure? And then what are the challenges preventing foreign investments from coming into the sector? Okay, I, I think that's a really great question because I often hear those numbers banded around about, you know, the financial gap we need to close the infrastructure deficit in Nigeria and Africa every year. And I always say that trying to close that funding gap and financing that gap is going to be like filling a basket with water. Now, why do I say that? It all boils down to the quality of the spend and the bankability of the projects. So from an investment perspective, the principles essentially are the same. The major difference with infrastructure investment is long term and then the pricing of financing. What do I mean? I essentially mean the interest rates. So typically, historically, African governments have financed infrastructure in, I think historically, they really financed infrastructure in two main ways. One of the ways they finance infrastructure is they've issued uh, instruments on international capital markets to finance projects. So whether it's a country like Ghana or, or Zambia uh, issuing a bond um, or, they try to attract investors by providing sovereign guarantees on infrastructure projects, which have been two main ways of trying to get international investment into the market. Now, the real danger with that, obviously, Chingwe, you know, as economists, is the challenge to long-term fiscal stability. 
um, and whether a country is able to service its obligations internationally. And then, of course, there's the debt levels. So the question then becomes, how do you then create projects in such a way that public infrastructure projects can be financed by a combination of either domestic borrowing and international finance in a way that presents projects as bankable, i.e. for investors, what are the returns on those projects, and in a way that is economically sustainable for governments, whether they be sovereigns or subnationals. So I definitely think long-term, low-cost, Financing is key on the international markets, but the environment needs to be conducive. Uh, the other thing is that DFIs, uh, I think, can play a role in helping crowding in private sector investment internationally through the Deriskin model. And the Deriskin model is that you just create a way that makes it pretty clear how this project will be managed, how service will be delivered, how returns on rents on that particular project will be delivered back to the original in investment. And then you do so in a way that ensures general political and, and, and economic stability that positively impacts the regulatory environment, whether it's around obtaining permits for construction projects or for gas to power projects or whatever else it may be. And the final thing I would say that we need to think about is Often, a lot of the risks that international money is concerned about, those risks can only be allocated to government. So what does that look like? So if I'm coming in as an international investor to finance a large-scale infrastructure project in the power sector, further down the value chain, particularly on the collection side, there has to be a structure that allows the last mile provider to collect proceeds of the service that's being provided. Because guess what? It filters through the rest of the value chain. And I think governments and the public sector also have a major role to play in that. We saw a bit of that, for instance, with projects like the Azura Edo IPP power plant, where the Nigerian government put a, a, a call option. Uh, it was an ind indirect form of sovereign guarantee uh, that, Protect, provides a measure of protection uh, on a power purchasing agreement. And I think that was clearly a collaborative effort. Now, I'm not going to comment on the success or otherwise of that project, but that kind of demonstrates that in order to de-risk a project that would appeal to an international investor, it needs to be collaborative. So it's a private sector working quite closely with DFIs, working with financial institutions, partnering with public sector, to ensure that end-to-end -end a project is attractive for investment. Thanks for that extensive response. I'm enjoying this um, conversation. Now, long-term, low-cost and conducive environment that you mentioned are valuable points that I believe our listeners should note. But let me ask this. How, how do we ensure that new infrastructure developments, which are happening constantly, are environmentally and socially sustainable in the sense that they improve the lives and livelihoods of, of the communities that they are serving? Okay, that's a really timely question. And, and the point I want to start is, obviously, ESGs is such a big thing now, not just for corporates, for projects. Everyone's talking about it. You almost have to tick a box on any of your projects to ensure that you can attract sustainable finance. But there are several reasons why sometimes these projects don't make, particularly locally, I've found in my experience, either there's a lack of knowledge about the options or expertise required to quantify the impact of a project. And that impact is usually environmental or social. It can be economic. 
And then for a lot of project sponsors or developers, the upfront capital cost of choosing an environmentally superior choice is quite high. And this is why it goes back to the idea of collaboration. So many companies today have to do environmental impact assessments around their or the services they want to deliver. And usually that requires upfront capital costs because typically, especially in many sub-Saharan African markets, the market hasn't sufficiently developed where those services and the knowledge is easily and readily available at an affordable price entry point. And then the other point is we need to start thinking more innovatively. One of the biggest uh, questions for any infrastructure project today is climate adaptation. How do you devise or design a project in such a way that is helping the environment or the users or communities cope with the effects of climate change. And I think for, for a lot of companies that are developing projects in core traditional sectors, whether it's energy, agriculture, uh, minerals and natural resources, it's really thinking about not just reducing the environmental impact of your project, but actually coming up with hybrid projects that mean you're creating solutions that help communities cope with the impact of climate change. And we know that in many of our African megacities, climate change is, is, is a big issue. So climate adaptation then becomes, should become a priority. Um, and then the final thing I would say is, by and large, when we're talking about international capital and international credit, there is a strong financial reporting and environmental reporting responsibility. I think the burden is now on project sponsors to demonstrate how their projects are ticking that box. And as we know, capital is, you know, it's competition for capital. If you want to attract funding, you really need to design projects that have long-term sustainability impacts. So we have a long way to go. We need to strengthen our reporting mechanisms even for publicly listed companies, and it would be good for all stakeholders involved in capital markets, public capital markets, and even private capital markets to come together to find a way that makes it easy for companies in our local environment to meet the ESG hurdles needed to stay in sustainable business and needed to attract funding. Thank you so much, Rolaka, for that. Now, now, the importance of infrastructure in boosting production and increasing a country's wealth cannot be overemphasized. There are many initiatives designed to drive infrastructure developments that have had varying levels of success. What is your um, assessment of the Infrastructure Corporation of Nigeria and the Presidential Infrastructure Development Fund's ability to harness opportunities for infrastructure development? Okay, I mean, we could sort of talk about that question, uh, <laughs> the answer to that question all day. Um, but, you know, this is still an ongoing initiative. PIDF, that's the Presidential Infrastructure Development Fund, came into fruition in 2018, um, managed by NSIA, the Sovereign Investment Authority. And I think the priority projects were all really focused on road and transport infrastructure. There were a couple of uh, large-scale power projects. But I think it's a good and laudable initiative. The challenge with infrastructure development is beyond the need to attract long-term financing is the long-term nature of the actual project execution. I think for some of those projects, the government has done well to progress them forward. I know there are a couple of them like Manvilla that I haven't moved. That's the hydro power project that I haven't moved as fast. But some of the road infrastructure projects are moving. Um, I definitely think that the establishment of the infrastructure company, a corporation of Nigeria, is a great thing. Um, 
you know, there's nothing like too much spending on infrastructure. The issue is really around the quality of spend. These initiatives gain sustainability, not just in construction and project delivery, but in long-term maintenance and resilience. And you have to think of this as both a capital expenditure, expenditure play and an operating expenditure play, because a lot of these initiatives often focus on the initial upfront capital expenditure. But then you have to look at the fact that if you build a world-class country concrete road it will probably exist well and, and be sustained for 25 and after that there comes maintenance the need to build build ancillary infrastructure around it and and so the question in my mind is what will happen once these projects are implemented and executed and how will they be maintained and how will they be integrated with the broader environment so i think it's a great thing that nigeria is looking at these highly capital-intensive infrastructure projects to help shore up our road and transport infrastructure network. I think there's a lot more we can do on the power sector side in other areas such as water and sanitation as well, uh, because that is equally important. And I also think we need to do a lot of work focusing on transit infrastructure, because that is going to be a key game changer for facilitating domestic trade and domestic economic activity. Well, thank you so much for that response. Before I let you go, I have one final discussion point. Um, Nigeria is currently preparing for elections. Um, what three recommendations would you give to the next administration that could support infrastructure development? Okay, so the first one is an idea that I've, I've sort of been thinking about based on my observation of as how we interact with infrastructure in our daily lives. This idea that you have to create infrastructure that incentivizes um, economic activity and economic behavior in a certain manner. So if you think about the fact that in many European countries, you can live in a city like London or you can live in a, in a city like Manchester and work in London. Why? Because there is a train and transportation system that is fit for purpose. So when we're looking at planning and delivery of infrastructure, we have to consider issues like labor mobility. We have to think about how people live and work in a city. Number two, we have to look at the after implementation and execution of infrastructure projects and how we ensure resilience and sustainability over many generations. And then finally, and I know we've been, you know, I'm gonna sound like a, a broken record in this one, the fact that a huge part of the wealth for finance and infrastructure lies within our domestic capital markets. And we can't emphasize enough the need to remove any policy or regulatory hurdles that creates, create a high level of risk aversion amongst local institutional investors, such as pension funds, from investing in long-term infrastructure. Those would be my three key, very, very important things for a future administration insofar as infrastructure development and funding in Nigeria and broadly Africa as a whole is concerned. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rolake, for accepting our invitation to share from your extensive bank of knowledge. I completely enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on your program. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Be sure to look out for the next episode. In the meantime, reflect on the insightful nuggets you received 
You can listen by visiting www.coronationmb.com or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Spreaker, and Player FM. Mm-hmm.